Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning and welcome to Out of the Blue on Sunday 10th of July 2016. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your own dial, or you can have a listen from our website at www.3cr.org.au. This program can also be streamed from the website uh, 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. My name is Andrew Christie from Melbourne Polytechnic and Marine Care Point Cook. And today's weather's a bit of a mixed bag in Melbourne. Uh, we're heading for a top of about 12 or 13 degrees. Um, winds coming from the north, uh, about 15 to 20 knots. And building in the afternoon, we're looking at uh, gusts of up to 25 to 30 knots. Uh, so a little bit rough out there if you're on our beautiful Port Phillip or Western Port Bays. Uh, do take care as always, a 95% chance of rain in the afternoon. So uh, just be mindful of that if you're out and about in the in the water or on the shorelines because uh, it is a little bit of a mixed bag today. Anyway, uh, today I'm joined in the studio by Caroline Esbenshade of Marine Care Point Cook. Good morning, Caroline. How are you going? Good morning, Andrew. I'm doing fine, thank you. That's the way. And today we're going to have an interesting, uh, we've got an interesting show lined up. We're going to be talking about jellyfish and the role that they play in the world's oceans. Uh, so stay tuned. We're just going to quickly cut to a brief announcement and you'll be back on Out of the Blue in a moment. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. 
in July 1976 from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale. 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on your dial, and uh, this is Out of the Blue. Okay, um, what I wanted to do today was just have a bit of a chat about jellyfish, which are increasingly playing a very, very important role in the world's uh, oceans in terms of uh, the ecology. And when we consider jellyfish, it's not all good, unfortunately. Uh, They're one of these uh, animal groups that are becoming more and more common uh, as we go along. And uh, a couple of years ago, I stumbled across a paper uh, called The Jellyfish Joyride, uh, Causes, Consequences and Management Responses to a More Gelatinous Future. And that really laid down um, what uh, the the role of jellyfish was going to be like in the world's oceans. It's talked about the uh, you know both in a past, present, and f- uh, future context, and it was published in a journal called Trends in Ecology and Evolution. Now, the interesting thing, and this was a paper by uh, the authors were Anthony Richardson, Andrew Bacon, um, Graham Hayes, and Mark Gibbons. And what the paper did was it sort of, uh, it was one of these ones that I seized on for my teaching for my Melbourne Polytechnic students. We've got a subject called Restoration of Aquatic Habitat. And I wanted to get them thinking about the role that these animals play in the world's oceans. So we had a read of the paper and it was it was absolutely fantastic. And that really sowed the seed for, um, for, for sort of investigating this a little bit further and having a look at it and it ended up being pretty fascinating and I just wanted to translate some of the key messages uh, across today but the real I guess the uh, uh, the, the main uh, emphasis for today's show why we uh, why I wanted to come on and talk about jellyfish today was a chance meeting um, that uh, myself and Caroline had while on vacation in Tasmania uh, we went to the Hobart bookshop and uh, had a look around and amongst the collection we found uh, a couple of fantastic books Caroline spotted one on the show called Jellyfish uh, by Dr. Lisa Ann Gershwin and it is uh, a gorgeous coffee table book basically Um, and I I sort of uh, don't use that terminology lightly I think it's uh, sometimes that's a bit offensive when you look at the quality of the book but it is just a gorgeous photographic study and Lisa's a a gifted author who uh, writes in a way that's understandable to the layperson and the scientist uh, alike which is a a fantastic capability and a a great skill to have so we picked up this book uh, straight away thought 
thought, yeah, we've got to buy that one. That's an absolute cracker. And then I saw one called Stung, and that talked about uh, in in detail um, what I was talking about before about that paper that was written, and it really emphasised the importance that these books have in the uh, the ecology of the world's oceans. So I was thinking, well, which one do we get? We're definitely going to get one of them. And then I thought, well, no, I've, my my role in teaching, I've got to know what I'm talking about, so I better buy the other one too. So we bought both the books, went along to the counter, and then the uh, the lady behind the counter said, oh, this is a wonderful book you're getting here. This uh, The lady who wrote this one is actually going to be in the store on Wednesday um, at 5.30pm. Um, so if you're still around in Hobart, uh, why don't you come and join us for some uh, for some wine and uh, some, some snacks and uh, get your book signed and all the rest of it. And we did. Um, Caroline, do you just want to tell us a bit about uh, your, your impressions of Lisa Ann Gershwin? Oh, she was lovely. Um, it was, you know, we... We walked in and, you know, there was heaps of people there and everyone was very excited. It was such a warm atmosphere. The whole place was, you know, all decorated with uh, everyone's handmade versions of jellyfish, whether they be crocheted or created out of, you know, a kind of, I don't know, I want to see, they were like paper lanterns, I guess. I don't know. And yep. then Lisa herself was walking around with a, an umbrella that was all decked out with fairy lights. So she herself looked like a jellyfish. It was, <laughs> it was a very fun atmosphere and she was just a really gorgeous, engaging person and, you know, she had the nicest things to say about everyone who had helped her with the creation of the book. And she obviously was just very enthusiastic about her subject. And while she was willing to point out that, you know, she didn't want to bring down the mood of the event by talking about the actual problem that jellyfish are, she was just really focusing on how much, despite them being a bit of a pest, that she likes them and finds them fascinating, which I think was the appropriate angle to take with the uh, tone of the evening. But, you know, she's obviously very very well acquainted with her subject and actually has discovered 199 uh, different species and yeah it was just a wonderful evening and she knows her stuff and she's just I, I mean if you need to know anything about a jellyfish i'd contact her yes yes she's an absolute uh, world-renowned authority on them and that's exactly right it's quite mind-boggling when you think about it now to be sure with that 199 species of jellies i'm sure without knowing too much about it uh remember when we're talking about animal groups like this sometimes uh you know there's the old textbooks that have been written in the 30s 40s 50s and uh you know the passage of time creeps along and then no one looks into it much further uh things start getting taken as gospel truth and uh, probably the best example is a previous guest that we've had on this show, um, uh, Kate Charlton, uh, Dr. Kate Charlton Robb, of the um, uh, looking at the Baranan dolphins. Um, for many years, we assumed they were the common bottlenose, uh, but no, there was a different species, Terciops australis, uh, under our noses the whole time, and no one realised until you look a bit further. And I'm pretty sure that's what Lisa's done: have a look at these jellyfish in detail, get all the molecular work done, the genetics work, the morpholo- uh, morphological work, and see which jellyfish are actually you know representative of the species and which ones might be a subspecies which ones might be totally different um so amongst that 199 species we're probably talking about uh, you know obviously what we're talking about there is a lot of taxonomic revision as well as discovery of completely new species so it's a, a an incredible body of work that this lady has been able to put in to this uh, to this area and benefiting um our knowledge uh, you know across the board of this uh, amazing this this fascinating species group i think it's fair to say it's probably Probably, probably been the best book signing, easily the best book signing I've ever been to. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, she does have even, I think, another book coming out in the future. And she's working on developing an app. I would assume it would be a sort of an identification usage app for, you know, the average layperson as a way to do a survey about what sort of species are actually showing up where, which is very important information 
both from a you know citizen scientist kind of fun way, way, but also very important information to see how these blooms are, you know, migrating across our oceans. Absolutely. So if you uh, if you get some time, by all means, you know, don't take our word for it. Check out, uh, jump onto Google and check out uh, Punching Jellyfish and Lisa Ran Gershwin. Um, that's uh, Gershwin G E R S H W I N, um, and see what comes up. You'll find on YouTube uh, she's putting out a fascinating TED talk that was conducted in Melbourne uh, some time ago as well. So that's uh, wor- well worth checking out if you want to get a bit of a, a you know a better feel for what uh, what makes jellyfish tick and um, you know what makes Lisa Ran tick. And and, and everything in between. Really, really fascinating stuff. So anyway, um, it was a it was a fantastic book launch. Uh, one of the other uh, one of the attendees was uh, Dr. Gustav Hallegraf, who's uh, actually on his way so- shortly, if he's not already there, uh, off to Chile. And uh, in coming weeks, I want to have a look at the situation in Chile, which is a devastating one. Uh, Gustav, I've had the uh, the pleasure of having dinner with at a conference uh, a few years back in Adelaide, and he's a world renowned authority on toxic algae. Um, so that uh, situation in Chile is a disastrous one. They've lost uh, as far as fisheries impacts goes they've lost about 800 million dollars worth of, uh, of of stock from the fishery uh, all sorts of things dying in droves because of the toxic algae but that's one that I want to have a look at later on because that's a that's a fascinating show in and of itself so we'll uh, stay tuned for that one but anyway um just in a nutshell, what I wanted to do now is just go into a little bit of detail about uh, what the uh, the role of the uh, jellyfish in the world's ecology actually is and it seems that the, the bottom line with uh, with jellyfish at the moment is that if you get a situation where overfishing occurs, um, if you're taking out uh, you know millions upon millions of bait fish to satisfy the uh, the, the world's uh, you know uh, consumers, um, what you can end up doing is causing a situation where the ecology is out of uh, out of balance. Now, just to confirm, because of course when I hear bait fish, I hear like you're going to use that as fishing material, so like as an angler. Yeah. Uh, is that what we would define as Good bait point. fish? It's, uh, what we're talking about there is, yeah, your anchovies and pilchards and all these sort of things, which certainly can be used for, uh, yeah, for the for the bait market. Of course, people consume anchovies and pilchards in their absolute uh, in their their absolute uh, millions, but um, that's where, uh, yeah, we've got to be uh, quite careful um, because if you take out those fish species that are. I guess depending on zooplankton, what you can end up finding is that once those fish get taken out of the of the picture, then of course what it does is it leaves a vacuum. Uh, it leaves an ecological niche, and when that actually occurs, um, you've got a situation where something's going to fill the niche. Now, sometimes it might be species one that gets taken out, and species two bait fish jumps in and fills that niche. But increasingly in the world's oceans these days, what we're finding is a situation where instead of another fish species filling the niche, the jellyfish are the ones that capitalise. Now, in many cases, what you might find is that these jellyfish are are zooplanktivorous themselves. If you take out the bait fish, that means your zooplankton bloom. And I guess the other part of the equation is uh, what we call eutrophication, which is an abundance of nutrients flowing into the water. And what ends up happening is you get heaps of nutrients washing in from areas that are very, very high in nitrogenous components, lots of nitrogen, lots of phosphorus, and actually um, not much in the way of silicon. So what that means is your diatoms uh, start to become uh, less and less common in the phytoplankton, and you get these um, uh, these other things called flagellates that suddenly become a lot more common. Now, 
what these things do is they end up stimulating. You get your big phytoplankton bloom, then your great big zooplankton blooms, and then on top of that, along come the jellyfish. And they suddenly have an environment where they've, they've got a target-rich environment. They've got more zooplankton than they can possibly eat, and they sit there, or so we thought, and they sit there and they graze on, they, they sit there and munch on zooplankton all day. You know? And in addition to that, what ends up happening is a situation where you suddenly no longer have um, the the small bait fish taking out all the little um, the the planktonic polyps that are the first stage of the uh, one of the first stages of the jellyfish uh, reproductive cycle. So once those get thinned out and uh, they get um, taken out of the picture, the jellyfish fill the niche and explode. And Probably one of the best examples we have worldwide is, um, and one we'll touch on uh, shortly, we're, uh, we're about to go to a song. But um, what we find is in, in the seas around uh, China and Japan, uh, there's this giant uh, Namura jellyfish. It's the largest, one of the largest jellyfish species in the world. Uh, to put it in context for our listeners, what we've got is an animal that can get up to uh, two metres across and weigh as much as 200 kilograms. So they're an amazing uh, uh, animal and tiny mouths, hundreds of these tiny mouths spread out through this jellyfish and the mouths are only about a millimetre in diameter and they sit there and they pick out the zooplankton and what we're increasingly finding nowadays is instead of the jellyfish blooms, monster blooms of these jellies that were coming along on average about once every 40 years, now they're coming through uh, almost every year and the blooms are getting larger and larger and larger. And now there's even some evidence to suggest that instead of getting to these monstrous maximum sizes, they're getting uh, to a stage where they're relatively smallish. And the hypothesis there is they're actually eating so much zooplankton, um, they're creating competition amongst themselves and they're no longer able to attain their maximum sizes. So they are completely and utterly dominating the, uh, the, the world's fisheries, which is quite, uh, quite an incredible situation. Yeah, well, they might not be getting as big, but then there's lots and lots there's more of them. Exactly, lots <laughs> and lots more of them, and there's, there's that intense competition, and it's uh, clearly an ecosystem that's uh, way out of whack and uh, and way out of balance. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your own dial, and this is Out of the Blue. Okay, so uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention before about the, uh, the, the jellyfish, why they're blooming so often these days, is we get situations now in many of the world's oceans where there are what we call dead zones and these basically consist of areas where there's a lot of uh, organic matter um, concentrated in an area sometimes what you get is like an eddy current or something swirling around so there's this concentrated pocket of the ocean and it doesn't end up being terribly healthy and uh, the end result of that is you get this situation where there's uh, matter decomposing all that sort of stuff going on not as much exchange with the surrounding environment as you'd probably like and you get this uh, dissolved oxygen depletion now the important thing to remember there is when DO starts getting uh, dissolved oxygen that is starts getting depleted there are a lot of uh, animals in the world's ocean that don't cope particularly well with that you get this hypoxic situation hypoxia meaning that there's a, a dearth of dissolved oxygen and uh, things aren't able to reproduce as much as they might normally uh, uh, be doing they, they're not able to grow as much as they normally would and what you have there again is a situation where the super adaptable jellyfish jump into that situation and all of a sudden they start 
start to bloom. And the reason for that is they are much, much better than many, many animals at actually being able to resist or tolerate those low levels of dissolved oxygen. And what we get is uh, in these dead zones, you've, you've got the, the jellyfish suddenly blooming. Um, the One of the most amazing ca uh, capacities of the jellyfish, one of the most amazing capabilities is for them to actually uh, have these polyps that sit down on the on the benthos, on the bottom of the ocean, and they sit there and they do nothing for several years uh, quite often. And all of a sudden, when conditions become good, become uh, optimal, they suddenly break off and start uh, getting through the uh, getting through the water column. And there's your next super bloom of, uh, of jellyfish. Um, looking at it on a local level, I guess, if we consider uh, Port Phillip Bay, can we say that jellyfish are becoming more and more common in Port Phillip Bay? Um, as members of Marine Care Point Cook, um, it's very, very difficult to say. Um, we get blooms of blubber jellies all the time. We get the, the lion's mane jellyfish, um, cyania, coming to the party very regularly, forming these very, uh, very significant blooms. And, uh, you know, that's something that's gone on for as, as long as we can imagine. Uh, to actually be able to... Uh, quantify that then becomes the critical thing. It's it's all well and good for us as representatives in Marine Care Point Cook to say, yeah, we're very concerned about this and it's clear that the jellyfish are becoming more and more common. But we don't know that for certain. Um, you, you're really looking at proper long-term monitoring and appropriate scientific um, you know, uh, study designs to be able to conclude that. Uh, whether we conclude that from uh, Port Phillip Bay, uh, well, I'm not too sure But uh, at, at this point in time. But it's more these, uh, probably the, the worst affected areas of those are around Japan and China at the moment with the Nomura uh, jellyfish blooms. Um, in continuing on with the show, I suppose one other uh, area, and just harking back to our song there on the super fast jellyfish, the idea of harvesting uh, the, the jellyfish and eating them is quite an interesting one. Uh, the Chinese, amongst others, have been eating jellies now literally for thousands of years. It's, it's gone on for a very long time. Uh, Caroline, did you want to, having uh, spent a, a big chunk of your childhood in Japan, um, can you tell us a bit about what your, what your thoughts would be on the uh, Nomura jelly in terms of uh, whether that would be sufficient, you know, harvesting these jellies to try and restore balance to the world's oceans? Well, uh, sure. I, I can say that I never remember ever being seen uh, jellyfish dishes and one part of that documentary was somebody was trying to kind of solve at least one of the symptom issues of this was for you know all the fishermen are being heavily affected that they're unable to catch any fish they're just pulling up the jellyfish so what if instead of trying to catch the fish they caught the jellyfish and they turn it into a dish so this gentleman on the documentary was trying to find ways of um, preparing it as a meal to make it palatable and you know kind of develop an audience and make it the next rave food so everyone would buy it so there'd be at least a short-term cure for one of the affected groups um didn't really seem like anybody was having a, a bite at it. And I think that part of the reason would be as much as it would be you could turn it into a rave food, but as they had said that it's very low in cholesterol and calories and fat, well, it also sounds like it doesn't have a lot to it. I mean, you can't really replace the protein and nutrition of fish with nothing <laughs> yeah, yes <laughs> you know? that, this is very true and that's where you've got to remember the jellyfish i mean they're, they're, they're as well over 95 percent of them i think are basically water yeah um, like i say there's minimal nutritional value uh when i was working at uh, what was then called mafri it's a very rapidly changing uh, uh nomenclature i suppose or naming um when we uh, mafri used to be the marine and freshwater resources institute and when i was back there way way back in 1998 russell hudson um was the gentleman that was working there at the time and he was exploring uh, 
the, uh, the the viability of setting up harvesting programs for our blue blubber jellyfish, um, which was likened to be quite a reasonable dish if it was prepared properly. And it was quite a process of, you know, you basically get the jellyfish and then you dehydrate it and rehydrate it and dehydrate it and rehydrate it again. And it was one of these ongoing things. And a lot of people, uh, certainly from a Western uh, um, point of view, don't value the uh, the jellyfish much at all. But obviously to get the uh, the Nomuras under control, you'd be looking at pretty massive harvesting uh, to, to be able to make any dent. Yes, it, you would pretty much have to probably say that we'll just replace noodles for like five years with jellyfish <laughs> strings. I think that would be the only way you could actually balance out the population to the you know the need. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. It's probably probably not a viable thing. Um, when we, uh, I guess the the bottom line with all of uh, what we're saying today is that the jellyfish are not um, you know um, they're, they're they're not the criminal intellect in in and of themselves. What we're talking about here is a symptomatic thing. Um, the jellyfish are one component of a very rich ecosystem and if we interfere with that ecosystem we get consequences and it's the same whether you're talking about jellyfish or whether we're talking about urchin sea urchin barons at marine care point cook something goes on to throw the balance out and the other things worth mentioning so we've got overfishing on the one hand we've discussed eutrophication uh, climate change is an interesting one as the world's oceans heat up it is it is known that that will favor some species of jellyfish uh, the other things so the other major ones are habitat modification there is some evidence i mean a lot of jellies do require situations where they need a nice hard substrate to uh to colonize to be able to produce their polyps and uh and pump those up into the uh into the water column so habitat modification is one that anecdotally there seems to be evidence that it uh, does benefit jellyfish as well and of course the other big one is uh what we call translocations um the ability of jellyfish to get from one ocean to another and uh having uh been along the swan river and seen examples of uh spotted jellyfish blooms it's quite interesting to note that this uh this species of australian jellyfish has wound up um in the gulf of mexico and it's causing uh, enormous problems with the shrimp industry over there clogging shrimp nets and all that sort of thing so uh you know we often view ourselves as victims of uh, introduced marine pest species but it's worth noting that they can go the other way too and our uh, our species can end up in other parts of the world and of course when they get there not all translocations end up being successful from the point of view of the invader um but when situations are are, uh, are appropriate to them, they suddenly explode and the, the populations increase. Anyway, um, what we might do, we'll uh, we'll look to wrap up the uh, the show there for this week. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, this edition of Out of the Blue, and we might um, we might just quickly uh, go to a uh, go to a song. Uh, Caroline, what have we got lined up here? We've got Wave by Antonio Carlos Yopin. And I apologise if I pronounced that incorrectly. <laughs> that, uh, that should be all... Uh, that, 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 that sounds good. All right. Uh, thanks for joining us uh, once again this week and uh, stay tuned for Out of the Pan. Mm-hmm. 